0: What's up, y'all, and welcome into the Jack Vita Show. I am your host, Jack Vita. We're back in action here, taping this on Saturday, May 21st, 2022. Last week, we talked with Brian Erlacher. It was a lot of fun talking, uh, taking a trip down memory lane with some old Chicago sports. And we're going to do that a little bit today as well uh, with a former big leaguer. He spent seven years in the show. I'll bring him in in a second. But first, if you guys like today's episode of the Jack Vita Show, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever it is that you are listening to this podcast. and Log on to my website, jackvita.com. Okay, so we're going to bring in a guy right now who is very knowledgeable about baseball because he spent several years in the show with four different teams. The Los Angeles Dodgers, Cleveland Indians, Chicago White Sox, and the Toronto Blue Jays, member of the 1993 White Sox, A.L. West. West, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There was only
1: an East and a West. There was only (laughs) two.
0: They were the division champs that year, and now he's the director of youth baseball for the Chicago White Sox. And in his spare time, he goes on podcasts like this one. He talks some uh, Big Ten baseball over the Big Ten network, maybe a pro baseball on the local Chicago shows that we got here. Please welcome Michael Huff. Welcome
1: to the show. Great to have you here. Great to be here, Jack. Good seeing you again. A little different than the last time I saw you, but uh, (laughs) glad to see how well things are going for you and glad to be on the show.
0: All right. I'm glad you bring that up. I did this last week with Brian. I had this football here that he signed for me. I showed him the ball in the year 2006. So I got some stuff from you. Let's see if you can recognize... Oh, the lighting's not great.
1: Yes, no, I can. That's my
0: signature. Yes, it is. who's above it? Can you see who's above it? No, I cannot. Scott Sanderson.
1: Oh, gosh, Scotty. Sure, sure.
0: Yeah. May he rest in peace. May
1: he rest in peace. Yeah, great, great egg. Oh, my gosh. Used to work out with Scott and Joe Girardi when we were all sort of in the... Well, Scott was in the majors when Joe and I were first coming up, so... Um, all of us lived, grew up on the north side. Uh, Joe actually Peoria, but went to Northwestern with me and, and ended up marrying a woman who was from Lake Forest. So they lived in Lake Forest. But uh, multiple off seasons, Joe and the miners lived with us to work out at Northwestern. And then when we were all in the majors, we'd all work out together. But Scott, just a great egg.
0: Man, those are two great guys. I never got to meet Scott, had only heard great things. His kids were at Christian Heritage Academy no. around the same time that I was there. And then Joe's kids were there, and his no. daughter Serena was in the same class with my sister Laura. So we got okay. to know them a little bit. It's a long time ago, but my brother. I think he, I brought this up last week, the gear my brother has in terms of memorabilia. I think he has a ball signed by all three of you. So his ball beats by a ball.
1: <laughs> Just by a little. Well, we can still get Joe to sign it as long as he's coming through town, which he will multiple <laughs> times with the Phillies.
0: Uh, he's great. I saw Joe, It's about seven years ago, out in Oakland. They were playing, he was with the Yankees at the time. Okay. And there was no shot that he would recognize me. Like you probably you wouldn't recognize me on the street right now. No, 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 no. Yeah. No. yeah it
1: was <laughs> too long ago. You were way <laughs> younger then.
0: <laughs> too long ago. So I just called him over. I was like, Hey Joe, Christian Ears Academy. And then he's like, What? I'm like Christian Ears Academy. He's like, Oh, really? And they came over, talked for about 10 minutes. He's a great guy. Hopefully yep. the Phillies can uh turn around a little bit here as we move into june and july
1: yeah it's a challenging roster for him so yeah a lot so, of talent but a lot of sort of holes in that talent not not yeah. well-rounded players although they're all very good players and if someone can figure out a way to put them in spots to win joe's one of those types of guys
0: absolutely so i also have here i get i'm not done with the memorabilia <laughs> i don't know if you remember this one.
1: Oh yeah Look at that skinny guy but you, <laughs> you take off that helmet there's a lot of hair there too I'm sure <laughs> so this one
0: uh as a picture frame For those who those can't see it, it says Jack it was a pleasure getting to play baseball with you God bless and best wishes always Michael Huff
1: I hold on to this
0: quick. and this is actually I keep this right next to my diploma
1: actually thank you very much yeah very honored
0: so, for those who don't know, uh, Michael and I go back a little bit. He Just was a little. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, it was a long time ago, about 20 years ago, but I played in his baseball clinic at Winneka Bible Church. We were attending the same church at the time. He was friends with my dad. You guys were in the same uh, Sunday school group, I believe. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, and now reconnected after all these years talking yep. some ball.
1: Very fun. Very excited. <laughs> yes. who to thunk it?
0: <laughs> it's wild so uh let's just go through we got a lot to talk about today actually you know what let's start with let's start with your playing career let's start with the dodgers okay you get brought up in 89 year after they win the world series Yep. a little bit of uh do you feel like you missed out at all when you no, got brought I mean, up
1: I, yeah when i was in Double A going to triple A in 88. Uh, A lot of people were whispering because everything was really beginning to come together for me in 88, 89, even better in the minor leagues getting that call up. But a couple of things were starting to click, and uh, a lot of whispers that the Dodgers have historically taken kind of one person from double A to the big leagues in years past, multiple years past. So you know, keep going. You never know what might happen. And at the end of that season, they get called into the manager's office and he's like, hey, I got some great news for you. And I'm thinking, I'm going to the Dodgers. He's like, no, you're going to AAA. <laughs> uh, they're sending a couple of guys from AAA, the major league. So uh, ended up the season in AAA. Uh, the next year, went to spring training. Obviously, they won the World Series and getting called up. is just like, oh, I was so, so close from getting that ring Uh, with the Dodgers. But uh, again, in that year, 89, a a great AAA manager, Kevin Kennedy, who managed for a handful of teams in the major leagues, um, Vaughn Joshua, hitting coach, really, like I said, unlocked a few things on my swing and helped make me more all around, uh, not just content with a single or a walk, stolen base, maybe a couple triples if I hit it hard, but loosening up the swing enough that now all of a sudden I'm hitting 30 doubles and, and, and 15 triples and 10 home runs, not kind of 10 doubles, 10 triples and three home runs. Um, and that got me that call of the big leagues. And again, very excited. You you, you get to Chavez ravine, all of a sudden you're, you know, Dodger blue. My mom grew up in LA, so excited. Um, and everyone kind of said, Hey, you know what? You're, Tommy likes to put rookies in. So make sure you're ready to go for winning by a bunch or losing by a bunch, whatever it is. Tommy likes to have, you know, rookies get, get in get their feet wet. So I'm like, great winning a lot, losing a lot. I'll be ready to go. Game starts. Ramon Martinez, the guy who was with me in the minor leagues is pitching against Tom Glavin and the Braves. you the Glavin gets the Cy Young and Ramon gives up a home run in the first inning. And I'm like, uh, all right, let's make it like four nothing and I'll get in the game. Um, <laughs> One nothing after one, after two, after three, after four, after five. So now it's one nothing, and all the bench guys start to loosen up a little bit. Um, thinking, when is Ramon batting? You know, bomb of the order, possible switch, you know, positions or, or you know, double switches. Nothing happens. One nothing, sixth, one nothing, seventh. And it's like, okay, you know what? It's not me now. It's one nothing. It'll be one of the veteran bench guys and Ramon. Eighth inning is going to be batting second. So everyone's really starting to ramp it up. I'm kind of, not really. Um, I would say the coolest thing of just the whole experience to this point is the fact that I got a helmet that only had like the one ear flap. Like it was (laughs) like, I'm in the major leagues. This is so cool. I got this special helmet. It's got my number on it. Um, And lo and behold, inning ends, you know, one nothing. and, And, you know, the bench coach yells down, Andy, Dave Anderson, Andy. You're hitting for Ramon. I'm like, yeah, makes sense. Take off the batting gloves, take off the helmet, sit down, all of a sudden get a drink of water. And I hear another coach yelling, huff. I'm like, what? They go, what are you doing? And I'm like, living the dream. What? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and they go, you're up. And I'm like, I'm not up. Anderson's hitting for Ramon. He's like, no, 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 you're leading off. You're hitting for Sosha And I'm like, oh, where are my batting gloves? Where's my helmet? Where's my bat? Grab it, start running down, you know, a very long dugout in Dodger Stadium. And the first coach kind of leans forward as I'm jogging by him and he goes, Remember, glad me throws a fastball, curveball, slider, changeup. And I'm like, Okay. (laughs) To the next coach, remember, it's glad me throws it inside, outside, high, low. And I'm like, Okay. Get to the next coach. Hey, Huff, remember, Glavin, good hard fastball, but great changeup. He'll work forward and backwards on you. And I'm like, okay, great. I just have to look for everything that this guy throws. It's not going to be one pitch. It's going to be every pitch. And literally get to the on-deck circle as the catcher is throwing the ball to second. So now I'm really nervous and panicked, Um, barely get to the on-deck circle, one swing, run into the batter's box. Um, The umpire literally yells at me to get out of the batter's box because I'd, like, sprint into the batter's box. Um, put my brother's initials into the batter's box. Our father had just passed away like a year or two before. And Matt and I were going to make sure we put each of our initials in to make sure we were going to take care of our mom and sister. And umpire's like, get out of the box. I haven't announced you yet. And I'm like, right, Northwestern guy, no problem. So I step out of the box, you see him point to the official scorekeeper, point to me. Now batting for Mike Socha, number 45, Mike Huff. It's like, whoa. (laughs) And so, again, most every person that ever has played baseball, you step into a pinch hitting role. What are you thinking? I want that fastball. I'm going to gear up for it. What am I looking for? Everything. Like I've been told to look for everything. And I'm sure Glavin, he's only given up two hits at this point in seven innings, is looking at this rookie goofball that wasn't even on deck trying to get his release point, ran into the batter's box, had to get told out the to get out of the batter's box by the up. And all he does is throw me this little get-me-over curveball. And I'm in the batter's box looking for everything, and here comes this rolling curveball, swing at it, line drive, base hit to left center. So one for one. I should have quit right there. Um <laughs> it was very exciting. I still have the baseball, but you know, Los Angeles, I feel so blessed to have come up with them because they were so intent on education and teaching. We had three coaches at every minor league team. We always had roving instructors like Sandy Koufax and, and Reggie Smith and Tommy. I mean, just incredible all-star hall of fame type coaches that would float around and not just be with us all year, but would definitely float in, you know, once every month. So, um, felt really blessed. And, and my time in LA, albeit very brief, just that one month, um, was 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 pretty incredible.
0: Now, Michael, what happened after you got on base? Because my dad said
1: there was a pretty good story here with that. Well, I mean, the the story goes that uh, when I talked to Joey Amalfitano, who was a third base coach, and I'm like, all right, what are the signals? And he starts to give me the signals. And I'm like, well, what is like on your own? And he's like, no, no, no. It's like, this is the bunt. This is the Hit and run, this is the steal. And I'm like, well, what about like double steals? And he looks at me, he's like, kid, bunt, hit and run, or steal. And I'm like, well, what about like, and he's like, you're not that good. Like, you're a triple (laughs) A. Welcome to the big leagues. Just shut up and listen to me. You just have to worry about three signals. And so I get to first base, and you can imagine, I am. laser focused on Joey Amalfitano. And I know it's gonna be a bunt, probably, but I'm not gonna miss this. And Manny Moda, who was the first base coach, leans in and kind of says, hey, my congratulations, you know, how about 3,000 more? And I'm like, I lean backwards as I'm looking at Joey. I'm like, how about three more? Like I'm whatever. <laughs> and all of a sudden Joey's looking at me and I'm like, I'm ready for the signals. I know what to look for. Bunt, hit and run, steal. And, and uh, Manny Moda had to say, Mike, you know, look around, tip your cap. And I'm and I'm like, now again, it's one of those legs, like, what did you just say? <laughs> and he goes, Mike, look around, tip your cap. And I was literally getting a standing ovation from all the fans there because they had shown on the scoreboard uh, that this was my first at bat. And uh, I did not realize throughout the course of the year until I got to the major leagues and was there that – in the major leagues, every game, you're showing some stats about you know minor league players. And because I was having such a good year, my name was on that scoreboard an awful lot for the Albuquerque Duke. So, you know, ultimately tip the cap. Um, I've got a photographer from the Dodgers who took all these pictures and I have sort of a sequence. Lo and behold, Dave Anderson put a bunt down. I get the second. Um, Alfredo Griffin, who had just come from Toronto, is our shortstop. Fly ball mid center. I'm halfway. I get back, I tag up, get to third. And as I get to third, again, Joey Malfitano, great job, Huff, good hit. And he goes, Did you know you were going to beat that? And I'm like, Yeah, felt pretty sure. And he goes, Pretty sure. You know, if you had been thrown out, we were sending you back to triple A. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> um, and then Willie Randolph, who was playing second that year, hit a line drive to the left. We ended up losing the game one nothing, but it was, uh, A pretty heady experience. And and after um, the season, when I got the sequence of photos from the team photographer, it was pretty neat to kind of see me at first base, see me at second, see me at third, and then kind of just coming across the plate. Do you
0: think that players listen to base coaches as much as they used to?
1: Oh, yeah. I think they listen to them more. I think kids nowadays have their hitting coach or their pitching coach or their strength and conditioning coach. And so they are I think, unfortunately, more inclined not to have a really deep baseball IQ and just kind of realize that they've been blessed with some incredible genes and are just listening to what their coaches are saying. So I I think, unfortunately, too many guys are just kind of waiting for a coach to tell them something to do instead of kind of saying, this is probably what I should be doing. And if the coach tells me something, he's just reinforcing it. Or if it's something different, I'm like, well, I'm glad you told me because I was expecting this to happen because this is kind of the situation it should
0: now, you mentioned Willie Randolph, Mike Sosha and that story. How many, four, how many future managers did you play with on that team?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, not just that team. Um, when I went from the Dodgers, then I went over to Cleveland for a half a year. On the Cleveland roster was Sandy Alomar Jr. with Cleveland. John Farrell was one of our pitchers who's pitched major league manager for a couple different teams as well as a pitching coach. Uh, Chuck Nagy was a pitcher. He was a pitching coach. Uh, for a couple teams in the majors, Turner Ward was one of the backup outfielders, like me. He was a hitting coach. I think he is the hitting coach for the Dodgers right now. It was, and again, we were terrible in Cleveland. I mean, that was the <laughs> beginning of the rebuild. Um, I wasn't good enough to stick around. But it, you know, sometimes it's those that are 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 good, really good, but not quite great, that become the better teachers because they realize they don't have all of the talent. They have some talent, but that they have to work extremely hard to get to that major league level. So guys like myself, the, the part-time players, there was a lot of those that you could tell with the Dodgers and with Cleveland that are like, yeah, these guys are going to be pretty smart players and baseball savvy. I'm glad you
0: mentioned Cleveland because I happen to know one of your former bosses with that team. Who would that be? Dan O'Dowd.
1: Oh my gosh. Yes. Assistant general manager,
0: Dan O'Dowd. So I really? sent him a text shortly before we got going here. Okay.
1: Do you, what do you think he had to say about you? Um, My guess is he's going to say something like one of the nicest guys that played in the major leagues. And he added more to that. He said, Oh, I, he said I, great kid
0: and incredible defensive center
1: fielder. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That was kind of the, the calling card for Mike cuff was uh, playing that defensive role. Um, but it was neat. I got the call from him when I was playing winter ball. Um, I asked the Dodgers that uh, next year I went back to the minors for most of the 90 season. And when I went to winter ball, I asked them to take me off the 40-man roster. I'm like, okay, you're the Dodgers. I know you buy everybody. So can you take <laughs> me off the roster and just see, I, you know, and again, I'm Northwestern. I kind of understand. I might be like a, a 4A player, not a triple A, a quad A, not quite major leaguer. Um, and they, unfortunately, kind of very quickly They're like, sure, we'll take you off the roster. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. You don't have to be so quick about that. But when they did, I got the call from Dan O'Dowd when I was playing in Puerto Rico. And he's like, Mike, congratulations. Just want you to know that, you know, we just picked you up in a Rule 5 draft with the Dodgers. How are things going? Want to introduce myself? And I'm like, they're going great. And he goes, I hear you're playing a little bit of second base as well as the outfield. I'm like, yeah, a couple injuries. And he goes, how's the body holding up? And I'm like, "Uh, pretty good. And he goes, pretty good. I go, no, it's it's holding up just fine. And he goes, I bet you're a little bit tired. And I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, (laughs) long winter, long season. Now I'm back in winter ball again. And he goes, you know what? Do you think you need more work to get to the major leagues? And I'm like, no. And he goes, neither do I why don't you take another week down there with your wife and come on back? We're excited to have you at spring training. And so that was, again, one of those, you know, moments that you will always remember, you will always cherish that you sometimes don't think will ever really happen to you. And again, he was the one that made the phone call. He was the one that I kind of first connected with uh, even before meeting John Hart and any of the other front office people with Cleveland. Wow. I didn't I didn't know that. I was just, honestly, I was connecting
0: the dots because I was looking at the years of your career. I saw 91 Indians, and I was like, oh, Dan O'Dowd was there at that time, and he's a great guy. So I said that note. I didn't know he was the one that gave you the call. That's a pretty cool story. Yep, yep, yep.
1: He's doing a great job in the MLB network. I love listening to him. He's great on there. Very insightful, very knowledgeable. It it was Again, it was kind of Dan O'Dowd who was the one um, that – uh, I spoke with when I went from Cleveland to the White Sox, where, again, was sort of that fourth outfielder with Cleveland, center fielder that they really thought was going to be their center fielder that ended up not who I thought I was better than, but quite when he got a little hurt or struggled a little bit, I came in, got to play, did pretty well. Um, and then he came back and kind of splitting time. I think he was first on the team in stolen bases with 14. I had 11 at the All-Star break, but you could clearly see... Uh, you know, who's really better. I, again, I thought I was. Um, and then they made a big trade and picked up Glenn Allen Hill and Mark Witten from the Toronto Blue Jays. So now we have Albert Bell, you have Mike Huff, you have Alex Cole, you have Glenn Allen Hill, you have Mark Witten, you have Turner Ward, you have Mitch Webster, and there's just way too many outfielders. So Now I'm looking around the room thinking, I'm glad I play a little bit of the infield because I can be that backup infielder as well as outfielder. And um, right before the all-star break, when both of these things happened, I bumped into John Hart at a dinner with my wife and he was with his wife, same restaurant. And I'm like, you know what? I can leave. And he's like, no, 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 you stay, you stay. We'll be over here. Have a good time with your wife. Hey, would you consider living here in the off season? Like you're a great guy. You do all these little things. You do this community service stuff. and, And you know I hear great things from our community relations Department, and I'm like, oh my gosh, of course I'll live here. But of course I'll live here. Um, and so went back to the table. Hey, you know, Cam, we're right here, we can stay no problem. So, you know, they want us to live here year round, you know, blah blah blah. All really excited. Fast forward 10 days later, two weeks later, we're on a road trip after the all star break now. And again, Cleveland, we're starting to get bad, but we all have all these young kids. We have these two extra outfielders and all you know, I go out to lunch with a cousin, come back in. The phone is flashing as I go to see what the message is. All of a sudden the phone rings and I pick it up and it's Dan O'Dowd. And he's like, Mike, need you to go to Mike Hargrove's room. You gotta sign some paperwork. And I'm like, Oh, am I going back to AAA? And he's like, no, um, Ashley, you're, we're in the process of making a trade with the white Sox," And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, they're getting ready to trade Corey Snyder to make room for you. Um, we kind of put you on waivers and the White Sox claimed you. Like we weren't getting ready to trade you or anything, but we just want to see who was interested. And I'm like, so you're getting rid of me? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, Dan, I, I, like, I just was with John Hart, like your boss, like two weeks ago, who said, I want you to live here year round. Like what happened? And he's like, well, I can tell you, but you got to keep it quiet we have an inside track on another center fielder that we think's got a little bit more upside than you. And I'm like, what? Who would that be? No one in the minor leagues. And he's like, no, it's this guy in Houston, Kenny Lofton. And I'm like, oh yeah. He's, he's got some, he's got some good upside. <laughs> Lost my job in, in Cleveland to Kenny Lofton. That's not the worst thing. You know, what's funny
0: is you were there like two years after major league came out Yes. How did that impact the fan base, the city? Like- oh, they loved it.
1: Oh, they were reveling in it. And, and again, we were terrible, but at least a, a little bit like Major League. I mean, you could see that John Hart and Dan O'Dowd were really turning the thing around. Um, you know, rookie pitchers like Chuck Nagy, who had a great career, you know, outfielders, again, Albert Bell, Mark and Glenn Allen Hill, Kenny Lofton, you had Carlos Baer, you had Sandy Alomar Jr. I mean, you could tell, even in 91 when I was there, there was really a foundation of young, it was like the first youth movement without really trying to tank, but they had made some good trades with a couple good pitchers and a couple good players they had, but clearly weren't enough to make Cleveland a contender, um, but they did a great job of, of getting rid of certain pieces and bringing in others to, to kind of have it all come together. How did you like Cleveland as a city, as a place to live? Uh, you know, it, it was nice. It, it, if you like a big city, it's not for you. But for me, it felt like a third of the size of Chicago where you and I grew up. So yeah. you're right on the lake. You've got the downtown right in the middle, all the suburbs around it. Um, it, you know, and it's Midwest town. So you, you kind of had those Midwest, you know, some white collar, some blue collar. So I actually, I really liked it. Um, it felt very comfortable. It, 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 it's, it was going to be challenging because my wife was from Dallas. I was from Chicago, some big cities, but I think we would have acclimated ourselves just fine.
0: I went there last summer It was the first time I, I did a little ballpark trip and I went to progressive field. And so I was only there for maybe like four hours, five hours. I really liked Cleveland. It reminded me of just like you said, like a smaller Chicago. Yeah, L- Lake Erie looked really nice. I didn't actually get on the beach, but it looked very. It looked a lot like like Michigan to me. It and is. Then the yeah. fans are amazing. Like that might be Cleveland fans might be the best fans in all sports. They they love their teams, even though yes. the teams have not delivered. They've got that one championship a few years ago, and that's pretty much been it for
1: yeah. sixty years. Yeah. Um, but I, I would agree. I, I think they do have some very passionate fans. I think that, you know, again, they're loyal fans, too. They're not going to waver and vacillate and go one team. If there's isn't doing well, they're going to stick by them. So, yeah, my time in Cleveland was, was, was fond memories. So then you get over the White Sox, and you're
0: part of the 93 team that won the division. Something that I think is a little interesting is the Cubs really don't seem to be a team that traditionally has celebrated and brought back Teams. So, for instance, next year it'll be 20 years since the 2003 team that almost went to the World Series. I would be shocked if they brought that whole team back and celebrated them. Like it's just not something the Cubs do. And I like that the Sox bring you guys back and do all that stuff because I think I saw you in 2018. They did 25 years. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, you were out oh on the gosh, field. That, that was day. so much yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah, I was at that game. I think it was the Royals, but yeah. like. That is really cool. I like how they do that stuff.
1: Yeah. So. I, and again, I think that stems down from Jerry Reinstorf. I think everybody knows Jerry's loyalty. Um, and again, everyone some, everyone knows Jerry's loyalty to a fault sometimes. It's like, <laughs> okay, you don't have to be such a good mensch. You know what? You can <laughs> let some people go, even if you think you may have wronged them. Um, but I, one of the things, I think Jerry's very connected to the community. And when he hears the community rallying around our team in 93, the 2000 team, you know, the, obviously the 2005 World Series team. The, I mean, he's going to make a point to saying to his community relations, to his marketing department, to his corporate partner department, and say, hey, we're going to keep these guys on our radar, whether it's five years, 10 years, 20 years. And we're going to make sure that as our fan base gets older, those that now are fathers of kids, we want to make sure that we can make them feel like kids again by bringing these teams back and, and and obviously hoping that that team that year is good so that their kids, when they're there, now they have their memories. Now, when you
0: got brought over to the Sox, did you grow up a Cubs or a Sox fan?
1: I, I Again, it's, this sounds kind of strange. I grew up both. Um, I was born... I don't with think parents. it's that
0: weird, honestly.
1: Yeah, maybe not a lot of people admit it, uh, Yeah, but I uh, was born my parents' sophomore year in college at the in Hawaii. They both were at the University of Hawaii. Both of them were athletes. So from Hawaii to California to Chicago to Boston, where they both got their master's. Dad got his at Harvard in the business school. Mom got her master's in education at BU. And then back to Chicago, all of those stops, college, working, grad school, working, um, we're all done before I was six, seven years old, um, inner city of Chicago, then Evanston, and then ultimately we'll met, uh, where I think we got to that sort of toward the end of elementary school. So when we moved to Chicago, my dad was traveling all over the world on business. Um, it was like, this is so cool. Like there are two teams. So regardless of when dad's home, we're going to be able to see a baseball game Um, when I was little. And I would say we went to, you know, two thirds Cubs games, one third Sox games. Um, But, you know, I kind of rooted for both. And when we got to middle school, um, I remember those one or two days a year that both of the teams were at home. And so all of the friends and we'll met, we would get together and save up money, $10, ride our bikes to the L in Evanston, a dollar on the L, to get to Wrigley, a dollar for a bleacher seat, a couple bucks for a dog and a coke, dollar on the L to get to Comiskey, a couple bucks for a dog and a coke, dollar to get in, and then a dollar on the L to get home. And you know, there'd be 10, 8, 12 of us. I mean, it's strange. Like right now, no parent would ever let their kid do that without a yeah. cell phone or something. But it was just normal because there were so many of us. But that was the one day we had always scheduled to be able to see both baseball teams. And, and just so for me, you know, I, if I had gotten traded to the Cubs, I think that the story would be exactly the same. A Chicago kid who grew up rooting for the Cubs, um, me – Going to the White Sox was huge college, you know, high kid growing up in Chicago rooting for the White Sox. Uh, and then getting to understand the organization. And obviously I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about what I'm doing now at some uh, later in the yeah. broadcast, but um, kind of neat to be able, to sort of finish, you know, my professional career, so to speak, um, in the front office doing some cool things for the White Sox. So, yeah, it was it was pretty neat coming to the White Sox and especially again, Cleveland, we saw we were bad. We were not good. Um, But again, just the beginning of the rebuild uh, and the Sox at that time had a lot of the young kids already here. They had sort of that foundation. We had a young Jack McDonnell, a young Alex Fernandez, a young Robin Ventura, a young Frank Thomas. And you had those veterans like Carlton Fisk and Tim Raines, um, a young Lance Johnson, a young Joey Cora, you know, a middle-of-the-road Ozzie Guillen, a guy that had been there for a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. So, I mean, there were a lot of neat pieces, and they were, or we were at that point in 91, sort of in second place totally focused on Oakland. As I got to the team, they're like, Oakland is a team we've got to beat. So we, as I got here after the All-Star break, it's like, let's focus on Oakland. And all of a sudden we got ahead of Oakland. And then this other team in our division, Minnesota, somehow like was right there with us as well. And then when, you know, September hit, we felt really good that we had Oakland behind us but Minnesota was now three games ahead of us. It's like, wait, wait, wait. Like, Minnesota's not supposed to be any good. You know, we'll catch them at some point, And we never caught them. And obviously, Minnesota had that magical year and that magical run winning the World Series. But um, it was pretty neat to go from a team that was truly rebuilding to a team that was a contender. And then being back in Chicago was awesome.
0: And I know you spent a little bit of time helping
1: Michael Jordan. Oh, yeah. how was that? Well, the, the two claims to fame I'm going to have and might be on my tombstone is that I was the guy that would pinch run for Bo Jackson. Now, in parentheses, we'll say that was after he had his hip replaced, but I was the guy when Bo came back to the White Sox, whether he was DHing in and the third at bat he got on base, I would pinch run and sort of finish up the game, or the few games that he would start in left field, again, seventh inning, third at bat if he got on base, or even if he didn't. It's just like, Huff, you're out there defensively, seventh, eighth, ninth innings, shut us down. Um, So 91, great coming in. Uh, 92, opening day right fielder, get injured, as does Dan Pasqua, and and half the team. So as good as we were supposed to be, nothing really happened. 93, now we have Ellis Berkson right as well. We're a great team. We're going to the playoffs. There's no playing time. So that winner, after being the defensive replacement for Bo Jackson, Jerry Reinsdorf calls, Mike, need you to teach someone how to catch and throw a baseball. I'm like, Jerry, that's my job. I kind of like my job. I want my job back. I didn't really have a chance to do my job this last year. And I know Ellis Burks is going to San Francisco. And he's like, no, no. I mean, will will you come down to Comiskey and work out this winter? I really need you to teach someone how to catch and throw a baseball. And I'm like, sure. You know, whatever the team needs. And then like a week later, Michael Jordan decides to play baseball. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> that guy, I, I, I can teach that guy. And uh, I remember the next time I talked to Jerry, when I found out, I'm like, you know, when are we starting? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, do you want me to work with him hitting wise? And he's like, no, 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 no. You're not that good a hitter. We got to <laughs> do that. You just work on the defensive stuff. And I'm like, okay. So for those two months, um, Leading into spring training it was very fun, kind of teaching him how to catch and throw the footwork, you know, the mindset of an outfielder. It was neat to watch him try to change his body. It was, you know, Tim Grover, his personal trainer, was, again, in his face saying, hey, you know what? We've got to do different diet. We have to do different workouts. Um, you know, you've got to change from, and again, the best way I describe it, you know, Michael, incredible first step crossover, whatever. And then on your first step, you're feeling where the guy is. And how do you lean against that guy and kind of work your way to, I can get past him to the hoop, or I got to lean, he's even with me, I'm going to stop. And fi- this is like an incredible first step. And then your next nine have to be even faster. Because all you're worried about is going from first to second or all you're worried about is getting from point A to catch the ball point B. You're not feeling someone. You can't kind of massage this. You have to go from zero to 100 and get that fly ball or steal a base or something. So it was neat to see his transition. And to his credit, you know, he worked incredibly hard. Now, he was terrible in the beginning. I'm not afraid to say. You don't as great an athlete as he was. You can't step away from something that long, but by the time we got to spring training, you could see market improvement. And even when he was in Double A, and everyone talks about the fact that he only hit two hundred, yeah, okay, yeah. But of the three Double A leagues, that one was the most difficult. It had the most talent from other organizations, and and he had over fifty RBIs. So if you look at every team in that Double A season there was probably only three or four guys that had over 50 RBIs. And those guys are college All-Americans or All-State High School baseball players. And he had over 30 stolen bases. And if you look at every roster in that double-A league, there was probably one, maybe two guys that had over 30 stolen bases. So, you know, was he doing some things right? Of course. And was he getting better? Of course. Now, what would have happened the next year? if the the, the lockout didn't happen and and he didn't go back to basketball and he started in AAA, I don't know. And, you know, one of those great questions. um, But if he had hit, Not 200, but call it 240. He hit 250 in the fall league. If he had hit 240 in AAA and he had 60 RBIs and he had 35 stolen bases, guess what? There's a lot of guys that get called up from AAA that have worse numbers than that. So I think we all probably would have thought he would have gotten there because of his name. But if he had put up those types of numbers, I mean, those weren't a call-up.
0: I think what's so fascinating about that whole thing, and keep in mind, I was born in the year 1994. So I I didn't live through any of this. but. This is a guy who, sorry, LeBron fans, he's the greatest player who ever played the game, Michael Jordan. He's at the top of the sport. He wins three championships. And he chooses to essentially humble himself to take on a new sport at the minor league level in a sport that baseball is a sport that humbles you. If you're a good basketball player, maybe you make 50% of your shots. You're succeeding half the time. The best baseball players are succeeding three out of ten times.
1: Yep, yeah, and free throws—you're ninety percent of the time you're yeah. succeeding. You know, so yeah, I, there was. We only talked about our fathers really once. Obviously, I was keeping his space and his personal stuff together. But um, again, '94—that's when Sheridan was born. Uh, my daughter, <laughs> who was friends with you growing up, um, yep. but Michael, our my father passed away when I was twenty-two. So. Um, the one comment that we kind of went back and forth about our fathers and missing them and, and sudden death. My father, father passed away very suddenly. Obviously, twenty two. He was forty four. Um, but uh, he, I remember him saying that his father told him, you know, Michael, you are a, one of the unique individuals of this decade that may be able to truly do anything you want. Like you're smart enough, business wise. You've got good people around you. You're athletic. Incredible talent, you have, you know, great um, financial wherewithal, you know, promise me there will be no regrets. Like you are gonna have an ability to do whatever you want. Promise me there'll be no regrets. So you think about, and I didn't realize this even at the time until watching The Last Dance with Michael. Um, over COVID that, you know, here's my cuff in episode seven, a bunch in the background. But I didn't realize until I watched that, like how that third championship was not a lot of fun. Like it was so much more work than pleasure. So now you have, you know, what you are the epitome of that is not fun anymore for some reason, where it's always been fun. You have your dad that is just murdered, Like you have all these, you know, whispers about gambling, which again, for you and I were playing a dollar a hole for him, it's a hundred thousand a hole. Well, relatively speaking, that's the same amount of money to us as to him, but perception is bad. So I think there was enough stuff going on in his world that to take a step away, especially after his dad passed away. And now what was the one sport his dad loved the most? He loved the most baseball. Oh my gosh. And my owner of the team owns a baseball team. So it kind of was one of those perfect storms that I, I kind of got the impression, this was more him saying, I remember my father saying, don't ever have a regret. And if I don't do this now, I'm always gonna wonder. I, I know I'm like way up here, basketball might be the greatest of all time, but it's not that fun anymore. And baseball was my first love, let, let, let's give this a go. And I yeah, first couple of practices, I'm like, Mike, I'm from Chicago go back and play basketball. I really (laughs) like watching you play basketball. You're really not that good at this, and you're a little too old. Um, But like I said, he was very genuine, very sincere. He worked so hard, um, and it was fun to teach him.
0: So then you finish your career in Toronto with the Blue Jays, Uh, and you had told me this when we spoke on the phone a few weeks ago. You said, I got to the Dodgers a year after they won the World Series, got to the Blue Jays a year after they won the World Series, How did you enjoy your time in Toronto with that team?
1: Well, it it was, it's, it's like a Chicago. I mean, it's a great metropolitan city. It's right on the lake, Lake Ontario. So like Cleveland and like Chicago, I was destined to be on the lake. Um, The people up there, again, the friendliest, nicest, you know, true melting pot, they had just won two world series. So the whole city was agog with the team and in love with it. And literally, I I think um, for those two or three years, uh, They actually surpassed the Maple Leafs in terms of the fan fanaticism because they just won the two World Series. Now, I get traded up there for the sole purpose of doing what I did for Bo Jackson for this guy named Carlos Delgado, who was this monster hitter, had a great career, um, but... There was no room behind the dish. He wasn't really a catcher. John Olerud almost hit 400 the year before, so he's not playing first. They kind of had a DH so in Paul Molitor, Hall of Famer. So it's like, okay, throw him out in left field, and we'll trade for Huff. And if we're ever winning in the fifth or sixth or seventh inning, Huff will just go play defense. And uh, with the strike looming, they sent him back to the minors just to keep playing. I was hitting over 300 that year. And so it was easier for them to ship him down. I ended up hitting 300 when the strike began. But immediately when I got there, I understood how and why they beat us in the playoffs in 93. As good as we were with the White Sox, they were just a little bit better in terms of the way they managed the playoff process, the way that they just made it truly a routine um, game. Where, you know, Gene Lamont, who was our manager in 93, came from Pittsburgh, been in the playoffs a bunch with Jimmy Leland. He's like, guys, this is going to be different. I'm just going to tell you right now is we're in the clubhouse getting ready to go out for practice before the playoff game. And he's like, just understand it's going to be different. There's just going to be more people, but really it's the same type of game. And we're all like, yeah, whatever, it's going to be the same. We walk out of the clubhouse, you know, into our dugout and like there are three deep photographers everywhere, like on the field. And I'd like look to Warren Newson, another backup outfielder. I'm like, Deacon, yeah, this is different. This is just different. <laughs> Blue Jays were like, this is not different. This is another game. Like they were doing everything normal. And, and so it never got too big or too small for them. And I think in some ways for us, it got maybe a little bit too big, which is why 94, I think for all Chicago fans, they truly felt like that was their year because virtually everybody was back with the exception of a couple people, like I said, Ellis Burks and Mike Huff. Um, but you could tell everyone kind of knew the rhythm of what big time baseball, what playoff baseball, especially when there's only four teams making the playoffs and how critical it was. And I, and I truly believe that the White Sox in 94 would have won the World Series if they had made it. It would have been a great one against Montreal, but I think they would have definitely beaten Montreal.
0: You answered the question without having to make me ask. So I got one last thing on the Blue Jays. Okay. You know, you, you and my dad met at church, and yep. I had read that that team had a lot of Christians on it. The team yes. the chapel
1: was a big thing. Uh, that was the case? Yes. I mean, I was the the chapel leader for the White Sox. And when I go over there, you know, just one of the first days or meetings, I'm like, you know, who's, who's going to lead the chapel? Is there any Bible studies going on? And it's like, oh, yeah. Joe Carter's leading the chat. I'm like, like Joe Carter, the guy that hit the home run to win the World Series, like the all-star Joe (laughs) Carter. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Ola Root is going to be there and Molitor leads kind of a Bible study just for Matt. Like, "Wait, wait, wait, like the future Hall of Famer, (laughs) Paul Molitor leads the Bible study. Yeah. Yeah. John Olerud. I'm like, wait, wait, the guy that almost hit 400, like (laughs) I'm like, okay, I can, I can tell these, these guys and this team again, has that ability to say, Hey, as cool as it is to play major league baseball, there's something so much bigger and, and there's such a, you know, a bigger reason that we're on this planet. So, you know, we are going to lead by example, you know, no one was sort of, leading with the Bible, but everyone, the minute somebody asked a question was there to answer it. And, um, yeah, you know, so there was that like closeness to that team. And then the other that just kind of blew me away was on the first road trips. I'm like, all right, so where are the card games? Which are the ones that I can't afford to be in? Which are the ones that like I, I can't afford to be in? I like reading books. So I'm going to read a book and I, you know, I, whatever. And they're like, well, these guys play cards, these guys watch movies. And then there's always the bridge game in the back. And I'm like, what? bridge. I'm like, how do I get into that? And they're like, well, it's kind of hard because it's only four. I'm like, but I, I want to be in it. So <laughs> does anybody else want to be in it with me? But it was Ed Sprague, the third baseman who went to Stanford. It was Joe Carter, John Olerud, Paul Molitor, myself, and uh, the sixth person. And we would always just kind of rotate in and out was, um who was the sixth person? I think it was, I think it was uh, Dave Cohn. So now I'm like, all right, these guys are cerebral as well as faith based, as well as they know how to like Joe Carter, like on an off day would rent like a laser tag place and invite all of the players and all their families and just rent the place out for like three hours and the kids and the parents. So he, again, knew there's a time for fun. There's a time to laugh, you know, and and there's a time to focus on work. So, you know, it, it, it was a great experience. And then after hitting 300, what was my reward? we're moving Delgado to DH. Molitor is, you know, kind of retiring, he's moving on. And, uh, but we have this other kid in AAA that we think is going to be better than you. So you get to be the fourth outfielder again, not the starting left fielder because Devon White and Joe Carter. So he'll be starting the guy was named Sean Green and you know, Sean only made like $150 million in his career. (laughs) was like a five time all-star. So I'm like, yeah, that guy's better than me. It's okay. So it, it was a fun career. Um, Getting to be a part of you know some pretty neat experiences along the way, and and kind of I jokingly say fooled four teams before the body truly started falling apart, and it was time to move on. You
0: mentioned that you led the chapels for the White Sox. What that? How much preparation went into that? What was that like?
1: Uh, it really wasn't much. I you know it was um, talking to the the chapel coordinator in each town when we were on the road. It was making sure through the clubhouse manager that we had some space. That we could meet, you know, and then what time was it? And then just making sure everybody knew on Saturday that, you know, hey, this is happening tomorrow. If you want to join us, great. If not, um, with the White Sox, we did one Bible study, just kind of, you know, some guys that, again, as as the chapel, as the, as the leader, you're just kind of coordinating, hey, we're going to go to this hotel room. You know, it's going to be mine this time. It's going to be Lance Johnson's this time. We're going to meet at 11 o'clock in the afternoon or in the morning. And we're just going to go for an hour reading, you know, Philippians or reading Ephesians or something like that. And it was, it was one of those that was more, um, with the White Sox at least and a little bit with the Blue Jays, you're two thirds, maybe fifty percent, two thirds talking Bible, and then one third to you know fifty percent talking life. And you know, how is everyone's relationships going? How is everyone's family going? Like, is anybody struggling or do they have a wife that's struggling or kids that are struggling and how can we help and understand that this is a sacred place we'll keep it between us. But then it doesn't have to be you who might be having something wrong with, you know, communicating with your wife or one of your kids acting out. I can, or someone else can then say to the front office, hey, how do we get a counselor for, you know, a kid? And just quietly kind of make sure that that player has some resources in Chicago or in Cleveland when that person is from, you know, Arizona or from Washington or from New Jersey. When I mean, they're not going to know any doctors or anything because you're just in Chicago for six months.
0: Now, Michael, the time has really flown by. We're 45 minutes in. Are you good to talk some ball for a little bit here? You oh, yeah, it?
1: for sure. For sure. All right,
0: let's talk some ball. OK. OK. So let's start with the White Sox. Which, again, we'll talk a little bit at the end about what you're doing with them now. But they're right now at, I think they're 19 and 19. Yep. Yeah, so they're right around 500. But they are in the AL Central, so they're only three and a half games back of the Twins. What's going on with the Sox right here? They have a minus 27 run differential how are they going to kick it into another gear to get back to where they were and what they were looking like for the first half of last season?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, kind of a couple parts of that question. I, I think I don't care about the run differential to be perfectly honest. When you've got so many people that are COVID or injured or struggling, I'm, I'm perfectly fine losing 10 to one and then winning four to three. If I'm over 500, um, I, I think because there's still 500, um, the glass is truly half full. If they were 10 games under, I think you start to say the glass is half empty. But you know, all three of your outfielders have been hurt or COVID at one point. You haven't had Yohan moncada you know, most of the year. Now he's starting to come back. Um Jose Abreu has started off slow. You know, there's Adam uh Andrew Vaughn has been injured. So you have never had Lance Lynn, you know. It there's so many things that you can point to, and it's not just the White Sox, I'm sure it's a bunch of teams that I, it's. I think it's really hard to to kind of say a team is going to be good or bad when you literally have twenty five to twenty five percent to a third of the team that isn't there and it's not been there or it hasn't ever been there on a regular basis. So, um, the thing that worries me the most is the defense. Yeah, I mean, defense is something that you can control. Defense is something that really is more mental than physical. Um, and unless there's an injury, you should be making routine plays, which the White Sox kind of – the first seven, ten games were no errors. And then all of a sudden, it was just like the floodgates open. So that's the one aspect that worries me. I feel like the hitting is going to come around. I, yeah. I feel like their starting pitching has been surprisingly good. Um, and you're going to be getting Lance Lynn back, which is just going to make it better. Um, I think their relief pitching, again, has been spotty. But I think they're too good – not to be good. Um, Again, let's just get to the backside of the baseball card, you know, just be average. And if they're average, they're going to be just fine. So I, I, if if you were 10 games behind this early, if Minnesota was running away with it, I'd be nervous. I'm not really that nervous right now. Um, Ask me in a month. Uh, (laughs) If we're still 500 a month, I think I still might say I'm okay. Um, but if we're below 500 in a month, then I'm going to say, hey, you know, you know, what what's the real issue behind this? Because, you know, it's one thing to start off cold and we know how terrible the weather was here. Weather was bad for everybody. So it's not just us. But then you combine that with the injuries. You combine that. I, I am also a believer, Jack, in that I like a set lineup. I, you know, you can go first to second. You can go seven to nine, you know, but I don't like having a guy bat second one game, bat fifth the next game, bat ninth the next game. You know, it's like, okay, I I know I'm just trying to get hits and I know whatever that situation is when I'm hitting, I'm going to try to, you know, get the guy over if he's at second leading off with a double, whether I'm hitting second or fourth or ninth. But I do think there is something for players who over the course of 162 games are creatures of habit. And so if you know, here's what my expectations are, here's what my role is, you know, I think it becomes easier for guys to have more success that way rather than, oh, I've got to be the four hitter. So that's a power guy. Oh, I've got to be the number two hitter. Well, that means I've got to take a bunch of pitches, you know, oh, I'm the ninth hitter, which just kind of means I'm rolling the lineup over and I'm just going to look to get a base hit. Uh, I that That's kind of the frustrating thing for me.
0: Yeah, they're human
1: beings. I think if
0: you're running a computer game, you can plug them and put them wherever you want. It's a simulation, but there's a human element to that. That gets overlooked. You mentioned the defense. Unfortunately, I just don't think that's something that can improve unless you shake up the roster in some capacity, which they're not going to do in the middle of season. You know what I like about the Yankees and what they have going right now is they have Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, who's a shortstop who just gobbles up everything. Yep. The Angels right now are really surprising. Every, uh, they're surprising me at least. Seven games above five hundred. they have Andrew Velasquez. And this is not a knock on Tim Anderson or anything like that, but if they had a guy at shortstop who truly gobbled up everything like those guys do, at short and i mean it's tough cuz then you have to move anderson to second base or you can move him to the outfield or whatever you do i would like that team like there'd be a little more stability by having that consistent shortstop who fields
1: everything well but I, and, and i don't disagree with that jack but i think tim can be that person and he's yeah. shown that from time to time that i think is the frustrating part is that last year you know again this year's first week you know, 10 days, you know, was flawless. And then all of a sudden, there's five errors in like two games or three games, and you've lost all those kind of because of the defense. Um, I think in general, you know, Harrison's a good second baseman. Abreu's solid first. Moncada, again, Jake Berger, I think, is our solid third baseman. Um, Tim, again, at times, is, is an incredible shortstop. It's just... I, and I'm not sure if, if it's it's a focus thing, if it's a practice thing, because I've seen him out there early working with Joe McEwing, trying to get his footwork right, trying to make sure that he's lined up the right way. Same with Moncada, same with you know all of the infielders. And it just seems like in game, sometimes he rushes himself or he, again, a little bit like Javier Baez, just trusts the strength of his arm so much, he just gets his body a little bit out of whack. And And when that happens, as you know, if you're off a little bit, Deep short, that's going to be a lot by the time it gets the first base <laughs> and I'm ready to use off the bag. So, um, yeah, I think that that's going to be a challenge. But um, it's interesting that when Tim gets into those weeks or those months where all of a sudden you realize after 30 days he's made you know two errors and the team is all of a sudden winning, you're like, OK, so it's there. Like, can we just make that all the time? Um, But I think he takes on such a bigger role within the White Sox in terms of the team leader, in terms of the batting average, in terms of so many other things. That's where I think sometimes he just loses focus just for that fraction of a second when that ball is hit, when he's had so many hit to him, because he's thinking and doing so much more than just focusing, like you said. All I got, I'm, I'm here for one reason. That one reason is to catch and throw a baseball. If I hit, that's icing on the cake. Now, the Central's an interesting
0: division. The Tigers yep. are really disappointing me. I thought they yeah. were going to be – I, I thought they'd be the second-best team in this division behind the. Stars. I did, too. I thought, I
1: thought them and Minnesota were going to be battling for second.
0: Yeah, and then the Guardians are around five hundred, and they're actually doing it in an interesting way. Home runs are down. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Home runs league-wide are down, and the Guardians have the best contact rate. They're a team that's putting the ball in play, and actually – the story with them for years has been that the pitching staff has been the strength. Yeah, Pitching staff is underperforming right now. Yeah, right? exactly. And their bats are what's keeping them in the mix here. Yep.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. Again, a, a little bit of a shock there. Um, Cleveland's such a history of great arms, even from people that you weren't really expecting to be that good of a pitcher. All of a sudden they are that good. Um, and, and again, I think it goes back to the, uh, the baseball is different without a doubt. I mean, the baseballs are now in humidors. Like, that is changing them. You know, the, the flight of the baseball is less, you know, it's just, it's a fact, it's not an opinion. Um, you look at the stat cast when exit velocities and launch angles and balls from two years ago versus today, same everything. And the ball is 10 feet shorter in terms of its overall distance. So, um, not getting through the infield as quick, not getting into that gap as quick, not getting over the fence. So your, your batting average is naturally going to go down a little bit. Um, but I, I, like you said, I, I'm I'm surprised Detroit is struggling as much as they are. Um, not surprised that Minnesota is where they are, but I just expected the White Sox to, to be not 500, to at this point be, you know, five to seven games over 500.
0: Well, you touched on something that's very interesting here. So the... Home run rate, this is from earlier this past week. We're looking at 0.96 home runs per nine innings. which is the lowest start to a season since 2015. But also, on the flip side of that, what I, I was not like, I guess we couldn't have predicted that they're going to do something in baseball. Maybe we could have because they keep changing it every couple of years, it seems. <laughs> yeah. But what is really surprising to me is that the strikeout rate. We're now looking at 8.37 strikeouts per nine innings from the hitters. That's the lowest since the start of 2018. So in theory, what we're getting right now is a little bit of a throwback style of baseball. You're not seeing around 2017, 2019, that era, all of a sudden, Scooter Jeanette hits 30 home runs. Uh, A lot of guys who anyone with this launch angle revolution could hit home runs. Now it's really... The big, the big sluggers are hitting the home runs, and everyone else is going to have to put the ball in play, right? And that's how you're going to have to win games. And for me personally, I find that brand of baseball more exciting.
1: Oh yeah, I do too. It, 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 there's a lot more strategy, a lot more action. I mean, all that, everything you're saying is, I, I totally agree with as well. Um, it, it, uh, it, it is, like you said, interesting that the ball seems to change from time to time. <laughs> And again, I think a little bit of, you know, management saying, how do, how do we make the game more fun? I, I think another thing with those stats that I, I would love to see, like, what was the average temperature in April two years mm-hmm. ago, four years ago, six years ago? I think this year we had such bad weather. Oh, yeah. I think that also kind of played into it a little bit. Um, not a lot, but I, I think, again, that that got a little bit of a factor in terms of why the home runs have been down so much.
0: Now, we are having the lowest league-wide average batting average. It's 234. Um, So that's not great. We'd like to get that average up. But, I mean, hopefully we see more of a contact approach in this game. The other thing that I think that we could do here, because for a long time – it was really cold,
1: Jack. i to tell you as a hitter when it's really cold, yeah, you're trying to barrel it up, you're not trying to really hit the ball on the edges very much cuz you know your hands are going to be shot for a day or two. So I think again that cold weather, I think also affected that strikeout ratio.
0: Now Michael, do you like how they are adapting and changing some things to make baseball potentially a more exciting product
1: for the fans? I I do. I do. Again, I, I am, I like the pitch clock. I, I like having a batter stay in the batter's box. You know, I'm don't, I don't know if you call it old school. I just don't understand how guys step out of the batter's box and preen for 30 seconds to a minute before they get back in and to get themselves mentally ready for the next pitch. I mean, again, this goes back to what I said earlier. I think too many of the kids that are coming up have someone that's telling them what to do all the time instead of understanding, okay, ball one, guess what? He's going to have to throw something middle in or middle of the plate. Ball two, you know what? He's going to really have to throw something middle of the plate. And now I can really focus on one pitch and almost one location Versus stepping in ball one. Okay, wait a minute. Was that a slider? Okay, if that was a slider, what? let me think about again. What did my coach saying? Next pitch, when he throws a slider, next pitch might be a slider. He's probably, all right, now I get all that information. Now I step back into the batter's box 30 seconds later. It's like, no, no, no. You should just know. He threw that slider away and it's off the plate. Guess what? He's going to have to come to the middle of the plate. So I might just say, screw the slider. I'm just looking for a fastball middle of the plate because it's 1-0. And all of a sudden he throws another slider well, if it hit the corner, who cares, right? Good pitch. Um, so I think a, a lot of the guys, if, if you shorten that clock, you get people moving more quickly. Again, I think for the pitchers, you don't have much as much time to get all that energy back and max velocity. You know, it, we talked about my first at-bat, you know, against Tom Glavin, who won the Cy Young that year. You know, he and, and Maddox and, and Schmoltz, you know, they could throw low 90s. You know, but they didn't, you know, they could throw a mid nineties, but they didn't, they realize if I'm just throwing it 89, 88, 89, 88, the next time around 92, the guys are going to be like, what the heck was that? All right. Because now all of a sudden I'm working hard soft in actually multiple levels of hard soft rather than 95, 95, 95, 96, 94, 95. It's like, okay, everyone's going to time that up. So if there's some things that Major League Baseball can do, and like I said, the pitch clock, I think, is one of those to say to the batters, the minute your foot is in that batter's box, you can take the left foot out to look at your third base coach, and that's it. Get back in there and get ready to hit. The pitch clock results are in so far for
0: this year in minor league baseball, the game average game time in minor league baseball last year, three hours and three minutes. Now we're down to two hours and 35 minutes. So we're basically cutting a half hour of the game. And the runs are essentially the same last year. We were averaging 5.11 runs per game. Now we're averaging 5.04. So Essentially yeah. the same amount of runs, the same yep. amount of action. Yeah, We're just getting rid of the dead time in between. And for me, like I think people are wanting to talk about, oh, well, why do you want to make the game shorter? Yeah. For me, like the games don't need to be shorter. I don't care. It's more just having a more action packed. Yes. Having, having constant yep. stuff happening. It's not right. about, oh, we need to be at the ballpark 30 minutes less. Now, maybe it helps as a television product in some capacity, but I mean, the other thing I think is really interesting, if you look in the rule, the Major League Baseball rulebook, you're supposed to call a ball if the pitcher doesn't throw the ball in 12 seconds if the bases are empty. Is it really? That's a rule wow. in the Major League Baseball rulebook. But if we put a clock in, we'll actually empower these umps to enforce right. that. Right. And I think this is going to be – and the other thing I think is funny, people are going to say, oh, well, that's not how baseball is played. Watch a game from the 70s. Watch a game from the 80s. You played in the 90s. Did you notice the game starting to slow down at that time?
1: uh, There were just a couple pitchers. I mean, it wasn't so much the pace of the game because you had four of the five starters, pretty much three of the five at least, that were getting the ball back on the mound like let's with signal, like Dave Cohn, Dave Stewart, those guys in Toronto, Jack McDowell, Alex Fernandez, like they wanted the ball and they wanted to come right back at you. So, like, I was around more of the players, but all of a sudden you started to see one or two others that, for whatever reason, they just – they wanted more time. They, they need – again, they needed to get more cerebral or they needed to get, like, that energy – a little bit more energy back to try to make a perfect pitch, and it just – I think as a hitter, it would frustrate you a little bit. Um, but it, it, I think, like you said, it was just the beginning of starting to see some of the games slow down. But there was still so much action, and, and you know, I don't really remember you know, too many two to one games. Um, but I remember a lot of five to three games. I remember a lot of six to four games that seemed to move quickly, and there was one or two home runs that you know some of those came in. And you know, the only time I pitching coach went out there is if the guy was really, really, really struggling and then the manager was out the next time and he was gone. And then the next time that you needed to make a change, it was a manager making a change. But typically, you know, it it happened once or twice, not five or six times a game that you're switching pitchers. I think all this stuff
0: is going to end up being good for the game of baseball. And I think one more thing that I would add in addition to that, in terms of and I think part of it is, like, at the end of the day, I feel like I'm still a purist. I'm still a traditionalist. Like, I don't want to change the game too much. Right. But I think there are some ways that you can adapt, like that line in ball, adapt or die. Yep. Personally, I think the NBA would be smart to do something with three-point line because I think the new brand of NBA where they just shoot threes, not appealing to me anymore. I don't watch. Yeah. And I think if, you're, if you want your league to continue to gain and grow popularity and maintain its fans – like you got to do some stuff to adapt. And so the one other thing that I would do is I think they got to do something about this play where the guy steals second base, comes off the bag for one millisecond, like <laughs> one frame on instant replay, right. He's holding the glove on him. So I don't know if you implement a new rule where you have half a second of safety if you come off the bag. Or if you I, – I think they're going to make the bases bigger. That could also help with that. But I think well, that
1: – yeah. I, I would say, like, you know, to that point, I, I do I, – I kind of like the way they have first base for the young kids, where there's the base in foul territory and a base in fair territory. And that way you're never going to have a collision at first. You're never going to have that interference from a runner – going to first base on that last step where the catcher hits him, And it's like, dude, I have to be in fair territory on my last step. I can't be in foul territory and step on the base sideways. So you're saying I it, I impeded the throw, but I have to take my last step there. If you have that foul base, then you're as the player, you're running right through it. And the first baseman has his space. I think stealing, you know, as long as you say someone initiates a slide, feet or head, and the hand or the foot hits the base before the ball gets there, then if the foot pops up, you're still safe. Like if you just say, I got to get to second and I can be off the base, if I beat the baseball, you're going to have people sprinting, (laughs) stepping on second running in the left field. No, 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 no. (laughs) you got to slide. But if you slide, again, whether feet or head first, and like you said, now I hit that, but all of a sudden my – my hand popped up for a second and he tagged me as my hand popped up and before my elbow hit the base and I'm out. No, my hand got there before you tagged me. So I'm safe. And if something pops for a fraction of a second, yeah. In all likelihood, come on, you know, I'm coming in hard like that. That's something I could live with.
0: Yeah. I just think the thing is, is as it is now, there's less incentive to steal bases and try to stretch that double into a triple. And that's an exciting portion of the game that we don't want to lose. Very true. So all right, let's see what else we got here. Now the twins are in first place. Are you believing in the twins? You think the twins are legit?
1: Yeah, I think they are I don't think they're better than the White Sox, but I think they are a much I I think they're playing back to where they should have been last year. I I did not expect them to be as bad as they were last year. But this was a team that I think I was expecting to be five games over, maybe ten games over Uh, For sure, this year. And, you know, depending on some breaks and depending on what people do, could that be a little bit more? Yeah. But I kind of felt they were going to be the second best team in the league.
0: Now they just lost Chris Paddock. He has having Tom, or he had Tommy John. He won't pitch until 2024. You don't have to comment on this. I won't provide much comment, (laughs) but it's a little interesting how five, six years ago, the Padres traded Drew Pomeranz. He had some injury issues that they didn't reveal with the medical tests. And A.J. Preller, the GM, was suspended for 30 days as a result. The Padres were aggressively shopping Chris Paddock like two months ago. And it sounded like everyone knew he was available. They trade him one for one for Taylor Rogers, all-star reliever. Paddock gives him five starts and is having Tommy John. Yeah, it's a little, little fishy.
1: Little yeah. Fishy. I mean, it's, it, it's one of those, it, it is the velocity down and you're self scouting and saying, you know, he's not the guy that we thought we saw in the minor leagues, but every test shows he's fine when he's fraying, so to speak. And maybe they don't do the full test that could show the fray. It's just a bigger test. You know, it, it, you got to kind of flip that around. Like didn't, San Diego just trade for Clevenger like yep. a couple years ago couple and he blew out ago, yeah. right away. So was Cleveland hiding something? I don't think so. I, I think again, these guys, it's so hard to predict, especially with pitchers, which again, why the White Sox are infamous or famous for really not extending pitchers as much as they are positional players, just because I think for every pitcher, it's, it's one misstep as you throw and the elbow is gone again, not like, Purposely, you just you slid a little bit more with your planned foot and because you were coming so hard on the curveball pop, there goes, you know, your elbow, there goes your shoulder. Um, It's just it it feels weird when it's multiple players from the same organization that you start to raise an eyebrow and then, you know, you hear about what has happened in the past with not sharing all the information. So, yeah, it's 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 questionable, but I think every player in every situation is a little bit different.
0: All right, let's run through who would make the playoffs if the season ended today. We've got the Yankees leading the AL East, Twins leading the Central, Astros leading the West. Your wild cards right now if the season ended right now. Angels, Rays, Blue Jays. You like the Sox to win the Central. Yep. Are there any other teams right here that are in the playoff mix that have greatly surprised you and are you buying stock in them?
1: No, I, mean, I think Seattle's another team like the White Sox that you could say right now the way the first sort of month, month and a half has played out, who are the teams in the American League that are kind of proving that they're teams that should be reckoned with. I think if you add the Sox in Seattle, this is pretty much the mix. You know, I I knew Toronto and I felt like Toronto was still going to be good. You know, you can never count out Tampa Bay. So I just felt like by that Boston, sorry, you know, you're going to be on the outside looking in with Baltimore. (laughs) Um, I I, I do like Toronto. I did not expect the Yankees to be this good, but I expected them to be good. Um, So, you know, from this you know, if I were to buy stock right now, um, even though it might be high, um, I, you know, it's hard not to say I I, want to buy Apple, you know, (laughs) it's Apple. It's going to be here forever. I kind of like the Yankees. Um, but Houston now with Verlander back, you know, it just, I I think that is such a powerful hitting lineup and they've been there and done it. I, I think the Yankee contingency really wants to face Houston in the playoff to say, okay, if you don't get to bang on any drums or anything, let's see <laughs> how you really fare against us. Um, so yeah. Of, of the teams you mentioned, I'm not sure there's any stock I would be buying more than the other, but I think New York is definitely playing as good as, as anybody in the entire major leagues.
0: The angels are surprising to me because the uh, last, you're not surprised.
1: Not so much. Go ahead. Why do you think they're, you're surprising?
0: Last winning season was 2015. It's been a long time. They've underachieved, you know, in my opinion, over the last few years. But I think what's really making a difference is we. they have Otani. They have Trout. They have Rendon. They have these stars. But where they've lacked are the, the rest of the guys who fill out the roster. And they're getting some really nice contributions from Young pitchers, Reed Detmers, just threw a no-hitter a week ago. Patrick Sandoval is really good. There are some other guys. I mentioned Velasquez. uh, Marsh, one of their outfielders. A lot of those guys are giving them a lot more. And in those roles, they've really lacked in recent years. So there's a part of me that still feels hesitant just because I feel like each year they do disappoint. But they're – I don't know. They look good.
1: I mean – Trout needs to stay healthy. That's kind of one of the the keys. needs to stay healthy. It's not just Trout. I mean, they need both of those guys to stay healthy. But you mentioned the Yankees before. I mean, they've got three guys that are so under the radar that are doing everything right because they can just do their job. I feel the same way with the Angels. I feel like they've got like three or four guys now that are playing, again, well, not like all-star years, but just a little above average from what their baseball card says which yeah. then all of a sudden takes so much more pressure off of the Trouts and the Otanis and the Rendons and your pitching staff. Again, when you score too early, and then you score two more middle, You know, all of a sudden you've got four runs by the fifth inning. Yeah, I can give up one or two, but I'm still winning. And now as a pitching staff, you start to feel so much more confident that, you know what? It's not like we need to just give up one or two runs to win. We can give up five or six and we can still win. And Guess what? Now you end up pitching a little bit better because you're a little bit looser and you're a little bit more within yourself. So, yeah, the Angels, you know, they don't surprise me where they are right now. Um, Seattle, like I said, I think is also one of those clubs that that is surprisingly good that's going to be battling toward the end like us. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see who comes out of the West and of the East. How much do those guys beat up on each other where there's only two that can come out of there um, with, with the way the schedules are lined up?
0: Now the Rangers are playing a lot better too. I've still, I I, I mean, yeah. 18 and 20, no. Pitching staff's not good enough. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. How about National League? Let's go through National League here. Mets leading the NL East by seven and a half games. No one else
1: with a winning record in that division. <laughs> yeah, that's a little surprising. I would have thought that you'd have had another team or two, uh, Atlanta, Philadelphia, somebody there. But um, yeah, I think the Mets, if they have finally kind of got a, a, the right cocktail sort of mixed. Now, again, is there going to be COVID? Are there going to be injuries? Nobody knows. But to this point, kind of like the Yankees, like they're doing what the big guns are supposed to be doing and their role players or their you know, second tier starters are just playing well. And, and that's all you need. You know, you'd know, you like to have nine All-Stars. You're never going to get nine All-Stars. But if you have three or four, your other five guys Just, like I said, have to play well, have to play like they're supposed to play, like you expect them to play. And for the Mets, they're doing that.
0: I like what Buck brings to that team. And I really (laughs) like seeing some of these veteran managers because – a few years ago, the trend was the opposite direction. Right. Let's bring in let's go young, young, young. Let's go young. There's yeah. a puppet
1: to the front, analytics office. guy. That's yeah. the, like, the GM's, the GM's like right hand man, so the GM can kind of be on the field. No, I think Dusty Baker was the guy. I mean, Madden was kind of that early, um, but he had won the World Series. It had been a while, but when Dusty came back in with the debacle in Houston, and I still can't believe that they were allowed to keep the World Series trophy. I think it should have been stripped. But um, by him coming back in, I think that gave. People like Buck, you know, an opportunity if they wanted to, to come back and manage. Because I think he proved with that team that, you know what, an old voice can work. Now we can look at the White Sox. You know, is Tony's voice working? I think last year he should have been the manager of the year. I think with the Thank injuries you. they agree. had and the COVID that hit that ball club, Like he did an amazing job. And yes, there were two or three times that he's like, I didn't know that was a rule. And then he's (laughs) an attorney. Like he's the smart guy, but you know, so many new rule changes with the clocks and the extra innings and didn't know something. Okay. But besides those two or three instances, like, Everything he did, I thought, was spot on and, again, earned him the right to come back. And, again, I think it's going to earn him the right, you know, to see this year through. Um, and hopefully, you know, the team gets healthy and, and he can pull some magic and, and they end up winning. But um, I think Dusty Baker was the one that kind of opened up that door for the, the season, I guess, manager or someone from old school, still being able to speak to the young kids of the day.
0: Michael, I'm getting a little tired of these Phillies fans. <laughs> they're talking trash about Joe Girardi.
1: Well, it, it's a harsh town. I mean, it's, you know, that that's one of the places like New York and Boston. If you're not doing well, they're not afraid to tell you about it. Um, and again, I think Joe... Um, like every manager, every manager works their butt off. Every manager is like eating, sleeping, and drinking baseball. And Joe, being an academic All-American, being a catcher, winning World Series, you know, doing all those things, managing World Series winners. Um, if if things aren't quite working, it's not necessarily, in my opinion, Joe's voice or or the message he's trying to get across. I think that you just have to now maybe look and say, Hey, I have eight really good hitters. I have eight really good hitters. I don't really have a defensive club. I don't have a club that has flexibility. I can't move someone from one position to another. If some guy gets hurt, like I have eight guys that can do eight things and that's it. And that becomes really challenging for a manager. So, um, again, you, when you take on a manager's job, you know, it's a temporary job, whether it's two years or 20 years, you're never going to be there till you retire. Um, Maybe unless you're Tony La Russa or someone like that. But um, it's, you know, it, I, I, in some of the criticism, I, I think, again, it's the fans that have to take it out on someone, and it's Joe. Yeah. But I think you're right. At some point, you've got to say, hey, it's it's still the players, you know, and it's, you know, they Joe's putting them in a position to, t- to try to execute and and win, and the players just aren't getting it done.
0: Well, the Phillies are the longest-tenured yeah. National yeah. League team that hasn't made the playoffs. The last appearance was 2011. Every uh, yeah, because of COVID, the Marlins got in. I think it was the Marlins before that. Okay. Every other club has made the playoffs over the last 11 years, 10 years. So not know that. Yeah, I mean that's where I just like, how many times can it be the manager's fault? You fired Kapler, and now Kapler's a big success in San Francisco. Right. So I just don't know. I don't get it, and also. Every bullpen guy that they put in there blows it. At some right. point, they had a six-run lead, uh, like a couple of weeks ago against the Mets. They lost that game.
1: Yep, I think it was like an eight-run lead that they yeah. lost. I yeah, mean, it was like crazy. So, again, I mean, it, it happens to every team. It's happened to the Southsiders that you know you feel like you're five, six runs up, and the next thing you know, like the game is tied, and you're like, "What the heck happened?" Um, but. 162 games so you got to kind of sometimes tip your cap and if you know someone hits three home runs against you it's like okay the guy just had a career day you know just tip your cap and we'll move on and get to the next one
0: so playoffs right now would be Mets which by the way they did lose Scherzer now six to eight weeks oblique strain yep DeGrom might not be back until after the all-star break so it will be very interesting. This is a chance now for the Braves or the Phillies or even the Marlins. Marlins have some nice young players. One of those teams has an opportunity to make a move to yep. make this a division race because it's very early. You can't win a division this early in the season, but you can lose a division this early in the <laughs> season. Yep. So, Which is,
1: again, where for the White Sox, again, you're 500. You know, you're not 10 games under. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not too panicked on the White Sox. Yeah, so that'll be an interesting thing to watch. But right now, there would be
0: no other team in the NL East making the postseason. The Brewers would win the Central. Cardinals four games back of them, they'd be in the wild card. And then you'd have three teams from NL West in the postseason. Dodgers, Padres, Giants. Padres are getting a lot more out of their pitching staff than they did a year ago. Is there any other team out of this bunch? No, No,
1: not really. Just the, the Braves Phillies, maybe? Those yeah. ones. I mean, but again, I, I I you know, one of those teams have to has to start finding a way to start winning and start winning on a consistent basis. All right. Well, Michael,
0: uh oh, one more thing I want to touch on. Adley Rushman called up number 1 prospect in
1: all baseball so it'd be fun to watch it will be rolling. fun i got to see him uh doing some work for the big 10 network when minnesota went to oregon state uh lost in the region out there but I got to see him in person and talk to a couple scouts and Sounds like he's the real deal. So for the people in Baltimore, uh, I'm long-awaited and uh, much anticipated, and I hope they realize he's not going to win every game by himself. Let and he's going to fail a lot. Like you said, baseball—you're still going to fail seventy percent of the time if you're an all-star. So let him kind of get his feet wet and just kind of learn how to manage that pitching staff and, and get used to major league kind of caliber everything.
0: Oregon State number two in the country right now.
1: Yeah. Solid ball club. Great program up there.
0: All right. Well, Michael, this was a lot of fun talking ball. Why don't you tell us about what you're working on right now uh, with the White Sox, with the Big Ten, and how people could get connected and check that stuff out?
1: Well, the biggest thing I would say, you know, I get to do this stuff for the Big Ten Network having gone to Northwestern during the spring where I'm covering the games, doing sort of the ESPN wrap-up show. Uh, After games at at, 10 o'clock at night, covering all of the the series that go on uh, over a weekend night or a weekend day. But for the White Sox, what's really cool is I oversee, again, Director of Youth Baseball. Um, There's about three or four things that White Sox do for kids that I oversee from events at the ballpark to the left field kid zone where there's three levels of interactive games that the kids can run against Tim Anderson and run into a padded glove. Uh, some batting cages. We have instructors. I oversee them uh, that do the instruction. Uh, we also have a jersey program where the White Sox will literally provide jerseys to entire leagues. Um, it started with four. We're up to 26 now. Um, inner city as well as the suburbs, northwest Indiana. Um, Valpo. Northwest, well, we're in Crown Point, okay. um, St. <laughs> uh, John, um, Dyer and Hobart um, but like I said it's so fun to to be able to provide different either dry fit for the t-ballers one button or full button jerseys that either have the SOX or the SOX or the White Sox script or even the South Side City Connect different colors so that every team has got this cool look to it um, and then the last thing is, 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 the, is the youth baseball, where we do camps and clinics. In the summer, a whole bunch of them, like over the 10 weeks, we'll do 54 camps, uh, anywhere from four to six camps a week, three in the morning, three in the afternoon, where, you know, kids are learning. You know, and this are, these are the little leaders, the five to 12-year-olds. Um, you know, we're progressively on Monday through Thursday you know, teaching them hitting, throwing, fielding, base running, game situations. Everyone that is in the camp, it only costs 159 bucks, gets two tickets to a Sox game. You get a backpack full of White Sox swag, which is very cool. Uh, just go to whitesox.com slash play and just type in, you know, click the icon that says summer camps and click your zip, put in your zip code and the camps nearby will pop up. So it's pretty cool. And then for that youth training and that youth camps, um, Excuse me there. Sorry about that. Um, We do training. We have enough instructors that we teach travel teams, other organizations, travel teams. We help little leagues running first practices, doing coaches clinics. Um, Myself, Dan Pasqua, a former teammate with the White Sox really do a lot of stuff there. Um, So for the in-house, there's lots of camps, lots of programs that we do specifically for some of the Jersey programs, but others as well. And then we do have travel teams. Now, we are an organization that does not go crazy. We're not going to have 12 at every age group. We're not going to start them at six years old. We typically only have high school age travel teams, um, but we've dipped down to the 13, the middle school 13 and 14 year olds so that once you age out of Little League, if you're truly, you know, want to get you know, a chance to really learn serious, serious instruction, you know, we have travel teams. So we have tryouts, 13 through 17 year olds, um, your seventh, eighth grade and call it freshman, sophomore, junior years. And we are putting kids into Louisville, into USC, Northwestern, Notre Dame, like we're big division one schools um, across the country. Uh, We just had the game at Northwestern last Tuesday, the 17th or 18th where we had one kid playing for Notre Dame and now we have three kids playing for Northwestern kind of group photo and stuff like that. So that's, that's pretty special. But I think for both myself and Jim Medusi, again, who oversees that former major leaguer um, son, former major leaguer, the neat thing is when we have the kids that are making or getting a chance to play ball at the D3 level a kid who all of a sudden has gone to a junior college and then transferring out of the junior college to a D2 level. It's not that you have to be the best player in your community to come try out for us. You can just be someone who's kind of pretty good that really wants to try travel and in, in a more serious way. And our goal is to a help you make your high school team and have a great high school season. But then if you want to keep playing, we will help you find That right slot, whether it's a D3, a D2, if you're a crazy academic kid, we'll work with you on finding those academic institutes. If your whole family is from the Southwest, we will help you find the schools in the Southwest because, you know, your dad was the one of the 12 kids that moved from Phoenix up to Chicago. um, But you have back, you go back there all the time. You know, our coaches, our staff, our college recruiting program for that elite travel um, we can help get you where you should be and where you kind of want to be. And so it's pretty neat to, to, to look at if, if you want to consider that pyramid where the Little Leaguers are at the bottom of it, and we know there's an awful lot. White Sox are committed there. The middle of the pyramids or that jersey program, the White Sox are committed there. The very top of that triangle where you have that elite travel, the White Sox are committed there. So it's neat to be the guy that Jerry has chosen Um, to kind of oversee that. And I've been doing it now for 10 years and and it's pretty neat and it's pretty fun seeing all that we're doing and all that these kids are learning from playing a team sport. I, I think that's the biggest takeaway that we try to impart, especially for the kids in the little leagues when we're doing the coaches clinics all over the place is to say, hey, in life, Like you have to study, 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 study to maybe get an A on a test. Oh, in baseball, you have to practice, 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 practice to maybe get a hit. And there's no guarantee you're going to get a hit. You just may hit the ball hard. That's kind of life. You know what? And, And you can't expect in real life just to walk out of college and be the CEO of a company. No. And again, as we say all the time, you know, every company has a three and a four hitter. Your president, your CEO, but there's a one, two, there's a seven, eight, nine people that are building widgets, answering phones, selling something. And if those people aren't doing their job, you can have the best three and four hitter, but the company is going to fail. So let's get all these kids to understand and the parents to understand this is about life lessons. Let's have as much fun as we can play in the sport. It's going to be good for our bodies to be outside running around a little bit. But let's also teach them that bigger moment and the bigger memory and, and, and the bigger impression that you can give them. of This is kind of impacting your life if you go about it the right way.
0: That's awesome. And so they can go to where to sign up for that. Yeah. White
1: Sox.com slash play. Um, and when you go to that website from the White Sox, you will see all these different major big boxes from the travel teams to the team trainings to the summer camps. And just click on those and you're going to see all of the different options that we have for you.
0: Is there anything else you would like to plug or promote while you're here? Do you want to throw out your social media handles? You use those at all?
1: Uh I not really. You can find me. I, I think I've got a Twitter account, you know, Michael.huff12, I think. Um, and she's got the major league baseball photo. Um, <laughs> obviously would love to say hi to the girls, Sheridan, Brianna, Taylor. Um, and just you know, this has been a blast, Jack. And I, I, I thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for
0: coming on. This is great. Thank
1: you, sir. Talk to you soon.
0: All right, y'all. That concludes my conversation today with Michael Huff. Seven years in the big leagues, several with the White Sox, the Blue Jays, Indians, Dodgers. It was a lot of fun talking some old baseball, some 90s baseball, talking modern baseball and how we can improve this game and how we are improving this game and what's going on from around the league. So if you guys enjoyed today's episode of the Jack Vita Show, make sure that you subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Jack Vita Show. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That'll help other people find this show. And guys, I know a lot of people were asking me after the last Urlacher episode, what can I do to help? Like, you're putting out good content. I like it. What should I do? The answer, share it with a friend. Send it to friends. Post it on social media. That's kind of the way that a lot of people find stuff these days. If you post it on Facebook or Twitter or share it on your Instagram story. If you can do that and link to my site, jackvita.com, that would be amazing, very much appreciated, and I would appreciate it very much. Okay, we're going to have more content coming soon. We'll have another great guest in about a week or so. And until then, I'm Jack Vita, bringing the dancing lobsters.